the level of income that you can achieve here in a short period of time, I don't know anywhere else that you can make the same money that quickly and that easily. I agree. And I worked day and night, day and night for six months straight. Actually, I think it was, it ended up being eight months, paid off all the debt. I was in, in over a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. You know, it was my desire to get back here. I wanted to be back here. I wanted the opportunity. I wanted the culture. And that's the thing is when you become so passionate about a place or a person or an endeavor or, or something, you'll do whatever it takes to get it, right? And you'll do whatever it takes to keep it because getting it's one thing, keeping it's another. You have to stay consistent. And I love Miami, bro. I love Miami for the opportunities. I love Miami for the people. Now, it's very interesting to say that now because I used to say I hated Miami people because I used to always get burned, right? When I first moved here, it was like burn, backstab, you know, lies. I think we gotta be specific on this because I, I don't want to offend the law. Yeah, well, I don't have that problem anymore. <laughs> you know, there's just crazy things here that we deal with that realtors and loan officers in other cities, they never even see. We should come up with right now, the top three things that we agree for people never to do during a real estate transaction with us. Man, this is a good one. There's a lot. Number one is do not buy a Lambo in Miami. That's all of you, because I know that's what you think Miami's all about. Or a boat. Or a boat. Because boats and hoes and all that stuff. Don't change jobs. If you do change jobs, uh, similar or same title. Occupation. Uh, same occupation, same industry, same, yeah. same industry. And if you're W-2, stay W-2. Correct. Same or more money. Yeah. If you're 1099, you can go from 1099 to W-2 or 1099 to 1099, but all the other rules apply. Correct. What's number three? Number three. I put some thought into this one. Please. 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 What's up, fam? My name's Andrew Loringer, and this is the Planted Moves Podcast. Planted Moves was created for those looking to better themselves and become their greatest version by discerning clear vision, pursuing higher purpose, and staying grounded in faith on the road to success. Welcome to Planted Moves. Nick Tiger Quay here with one of my dear friends, Drew Loringer, talking about life, love, relationships, travel, Miami, passion, real estate, and mortgages, because can't forget about how we're able to do all these beautiful things. Talking about our childhoods, a little bit about spirituality, about helping other men grow to become better how we've gone through some more deals, and we're going to be talking about the biggest troubles we've had in our life that became our biggest blessing. So do not miss this. Drew is an absolutely amazing human, an amazing leader, and an amazing man. Cannot wait for you all to hear this. Let's get into it. All right, bro. Dude, thank you for giving me such a terrific intro to my own podcast. I love that. Great, <laughs> bro. Yeah. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to Planted Moves. I am so excited to have my friend Nick Tiger Quay here. Yes. Bro, we have been talking about doing this for a while, years. And um, dude, it's I'm, I'm excited to have you, man. Good to be here. <laughs> I'm so excited. So yeah. We've been talking about doing video together for a long time. It's been a while. Yeah, it really has been. Yeah, um, man. So what are the questions that I have? I think this would be a fun topic for us. We should come up with right now the top three things that we agree for people never to do during a real estate transaction with us. Man, this is a good one. There's a lot. 
Are we basing it off of horror stories? Because there's plenty of those. That should be another one. I think we should get into horror stories. Well, number one, do not buy a Lamborghini the day before you're closing. <laughs> a boat just as bad. Do not buy a large item on credit before you're closing. Don't do it. Or cash. Actually, it is just as bad. If I see it leave your account, I know. that's not good. Yeah. If you're going to do cash, buy it from an account that I don't see, that you didn't give me statements for it. Good. Okay. So we. So that's definitely one. Yeah. Um, something else not to do is just to be fully honest and transparent about things. Yeah. Something that's happened with me recently Oh man, uh, <laughs> I had an all cash buyer and the seller, both the seller and the listing agent basically committed fraud. And yeah. And so the closing was on Monday. We find out from our title, cause you know, it was a 15 day close. Yeah. Very, very foul. Wow. Cash, you know, vacant house and, uh, two business days before closing our title company goes, Hey, just to let you know, we checked the owner in New Jersey cause they found that maybe someone with the same name owned property, the guy had been bankruptcy for a year and a half. Oh. Bankruptcy. I wouldn't go so far as to say that that's like a major thing don't do, right? Uh, or do or don't. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm saying the title insurance. But to touch on that, I do have a lot of buyers. They see the closing disclosure. They see the, the fees worksheet and they're like, what the heck is this? Like, you know, it's like two grand, three grand. If it's a big deal, it could be eight grand, 10 grand, right? And so oftentimes they see those and they're like, I don't want to pay this. It says optional in parentheses, right? And they're like, if it's optional, I don't want it. And I'm like, it's, I think it's like important. I'm not going to tell you what to do or not to, but I think you should get on the phone with the title company and discuss that. And I always have them get on the phone because um, what happened to me recently and what could have happened to your buyer is, you know, title didn't find something. It was huge, actually. The pool was done illegally and it was done improperly. On top of that, not only were there liens because of that from the county, but also the GC had never gotten paid. So the GC was suing and put a lien on it. There was a $60,000 lien for from the GC, and then there was another $20,000 from the county for code violations. County stuff's not the end of the world because that's negotiable. The problem is these people said, you know, title, optional title insurance, I don't want it. <laughs> so six months later, I get a call. Wait, so the contractor went after the new owner? Because that should have stayed. It should have. It should have. But this guy calls me and he's like, hey, I just got a call. There's big problems. I called the title company. They said they can't help me. Yeah. So the thing with the county, I understand. Yeah. That's that's another reason. I don't know how they resolved that. I'm sure they went to, you know, I'm sure they went to court. and they, The pool they should have just gone yeah. after. I mean, everybody should have sued the previous owner at that point. Yeah, of course. So, but I mean, you know, he did have to, and I haven't spoken to him in a while. I probably should follow up. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, so the guy... <laughs> You know how it gets sometimes. Uh, but yeah, man. Uh, it, yeah, I never heard anything back about the you know the issue of the GC, but apparently he did have to go like really fight with the county over this thing. Yeah, I mean, we've had that happen quite a few times. And so, you know, like maybe Dayton Broward is one thing. I've heard horror stories about other counties, but um, depending if it's the city or the county or, you know, it's unincorporated Dade, which a lot of the, a lot of the areas out with the big. Yeah, big of course. Areas. And I've saw a lot of estates out there, like in Redland and some other areas where it's unincorporated. So it's a little bit easier because you're, you're dealing with the, with the county. But, um, you know, it, it's interesting because little things that you can do and at the time you do it, it seems like a lot of money, but the headaches yeah. at a minimum are going to be multiples of that. And, you know, big. Um, like let's say like, you know, like a $2,000 title insurance policy, 
if it actually became an issue, let's say there's a $50,000 debt against it, or worse, or let's say that it was owned by two parties, but one was in bankruptcy, wasn't legally allowed to sign a contract to begin with. Now, if they had title insurance, of course, covered and the title insurance kicks in, but it's still extremely stressful. Yeah. But if they didn't, if they didn't, they get to go after the asset. Yeah, man. And actually, the whole the whole thing would be considered illegal. And, and I'm I'm not an attorney or a judge, but um, it could go a lot of different ways. I've yeah. had this conversation with really, really, really good attorneys, with litigators, with defense attorneys, with real estate specialists, and, and all kinds of other people in between. And it's going to be up to. Them. It's not always cutting. We 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 wish that it was mm-hmm. that everything was black and white. But when you get attorneys involved. Um, sometimes it's a relationship thing that actually wins the case. Yeah. So hopefully the relationships are on our side. Yeah, that's true, man. Um, man, what is a third thing a buyer should not do? Well, mm, or the car on the boat. The car on the boat's great. Yep. Credit lines, but I don't know if that's. I was, you know what I was going to say? Do not. You lock on the other property. This is going to be a two pronged thing. Okay. What okay. Curious. Two pronged. It's all around the same general issue. Yeah. But for the love of God, please do not leave your job or get fired. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and secondly, do not go from W2 employed to self-employed. Yes. Please. It's like a nightmare. Please don't open up a business a month before, decide you're going to quit. You're going to well, be all in. Keep your day job yeah, please keep your day job until you close, please. So I, okay, so on that, on that, um, if you do change jobs and, the, you know, so I'm not a mortgage broker, right? But yeah. That you do full time. I've been doing real estate for 17 years. You've been um, lending for quite a few. Yeah, almost seven. Yeah. So, okay. So, so from what I understand is if you are going to change jobs, um, some other title can be very important. Mm-hmm. So we've had deals where we end up having the company change the title of the buyer to, to match the previous yeah. title. Um, and from what I understand, it's got to be similar salary or higher. Potentially a similar position of hire, but same industry. Same industry. They That's the key. Industry jump. That's the key. There's other things that I don't understand. Yeah. So I mean, so if you are going to switch jobs, make sure that it's in the same industry. Same it, industry. Yeah. And if you're W two, go to W two. Yeah. If you're 1099, go to 1099 or go to W two, but do not go from W two to 1099. We we just had this on a on a big deal. Like a one point six million dollar deal, and the, I was like, "What the hell are you doing?" I just had this too, and the guy, you know, he's telling me he's like, "What, what the heck's going on?" He was like, "This is BS." He was like, "I was commissioned W two, and now I'm commissioned ten ninety nine. The only thing that's changed is my ability to write off now, which is in my favor, and my pay jumped dramatically. Before he was getting like, I don't know, it's like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, basically average. Now he's like, I'm in a position where I'm making two hundred because I get paid more. So he's like, my pay went up." And I'm able to write off things now, right? Because I because significantly higher. significantly higher. So if you think about it, like just as any buyer would, even I would, it makes sense. It's a logical move, and it's putting him in a better financial position. However, in the eyes of the bank, it shows instability. I always found that so interesting. Yeah, you you would think that if somebody's making more money, but then again, if it's if it just happened a month ago, in the eyes of the bank, W two is consistent, concise. It's guaranteed, you know. That we live in today, nothing's guaranteed. I mean, you can look at the companies right now. Uh, some major companies. One just laid off twenty thousand employees this week. Now, I don't know if they were all domestic or not. It's quite possible that a lot of them were were foreign contractors, but a lot of domestic people are getting laid off again. Still, even now with twenty, yeah. And so it's interesting where what's stability from the bank standpoint. I mean, as far as you guys are concerned, it's 
two, so the way I understand it is two years bank statement, two years same job, that's the best, yeah. go on a year. Mm-hmm. But something that a lot of contractors like us would do is we would do bank statement loans. Correct. So there's still hope and there's still, the rates are a little bit higher. Correct. You can buy them down, right? And yeah. then something that I've been able to do is we sometimes we're able to get the seller to contribute. So instead of a closing contribution towards the closing cost, whether it's used that way or not, we get them to contribute money for a rate. Exactly. If yeah. they want to buy it on their rate, they do. If not, they just take I've it. I've seen that a lot. I've seen that a lot. Now, the thing that's that people- Because you can still get into the five. Of course. Which is a heck of a rate. I actually, I just did one. I just did it. It was five and a quarter. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, man. Five and a quarter. Bro, you know what's crazy? Bank statements? Uh, no, it wasn't a bank statement. Okay. The, yeah. You got five and a quarter for bank statements. No, I didn't. Mark. I actually just did one uh, last week on bank statements. The guy got a 6.875. But he did buy it down. It's like a whole point. He bought one point eight. One point eight point. Point eight. He bought one point eight down. You guys were allowed to do that because mm-hmm. a lot of lenders stop at a point. So I'm a broker. Oh yeah. So let's talk about that. So yeah. okay. Before we go to that though, well, we got let's put a pin on it. I want to actually come back to something you just mentioned about the bank statements because I think what people really need to understand is it's not as simple as just give me 12 month bank statement and call it a day. If they just made that change a month ago, right? They have personal bank statements, I'm assuming, that they were getting dripped money into. And now they're 1099, they may be putting it back into their personal account. They may putting be putting it into a new business account. Both of those are fine. I can use 12 month business statement or 12 month bank uh, personal. However, you have to own a business. You need an LLC. Yeah, well, I do. Yeah. So that's I using the, I was using the statements from my LLC, which, and it was contractors, a lot of the money stays in there. So, you know, one of my cars is paid for the the, the work car. I have the toy that I paid for, the 67 Camaro, that, that, that's on mine. That's my personal, yeah. my personal daily driver. One day it'll be a daily driver. I'm working really hard to get it there. Dude, so that thing is sweet, sweet, man. It's really sweet. But the point is the, the, the SUV that I take clients in and the one that I use for work, yeah. Uh, the company pays for it, my, my LSE. Yeah. So we were going to do that and then also my personal. Because I have other income. My, yeah. my other income goes into my personal anyway, not not to the business. Okay. Um, so I have all my real estate sales and all that goes to the business, the LFC. And then I have my, my staff and my, my accounting and my marketing and all the stuff that I spend money on. Um, the personal plus, plus personal income and investment gain. That's great. Yeah, so it worked out. So the reason why I mentioned that... The importance about the bank statement program, if you're going to do it, is that the non-QM lenders that are running these deals, for the most part, not every time, but for the most part, nine out of 10 of them will want to see you've owned your LLC for at least two years. Yes. So that's important because a lot of people think, oh, I just left my job and now I'm 10 and nine. Oh, I can go 12 month bank statement. Well, that's not the case. Do you own an LLC? The, how how long has that LLC been in operation? That's a good reason for everybody and their mother to have at least two LLCs. Just in case, yeah. if one day you can come back. You said a word that people might not know. You said non-QM. Yeah. Drew, what does non-QM mean? Non-QM is basically my life because of geographically where I live. So being in downtown Miami, all I get is non-QM for the most part. I get a lot of it. I mean, it's 85% of my business. Non-QM is a non-qualified mortgage, right? So what is a qualified speaking? What is a qualified mortgage? Let's start there. So a qualified mortgage is any loan that can be sold on the secondary market, which I know is a fancy term for a lot of people. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. To Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Now, why that's important is because on the secondary market, which is basically an exchange where groups of mortgages that are piled into mortgage-backed securities are exchanged. And the right? portfolios of all the banks buying 
those loans considered qualified mortgages, they're all written off of particular guidelines. Those guidelines are set by the institutions of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? Or if it's an FHA loan, it's HUD. If it's VA, you know, it's Office of Veterans Affairs. Correct. So the government sets standard for a particular loan. Those are the two years tax returns, the two years W-2s or 1099s, the two months of bank statements, you know, all of the typical normal stuff that we require to get a loan approved. So anything that falls under that umbrella is a QM qualified mortgage. Anything that falls outside of that umbrella is a non-QM loan. These are your 12-month bank statement, 24-month bank statements, your DSCR cash flow loans, your no income loans, your anything that is not under this umbrella falls into the non-QM category. Now, because of the, you know, where we live for the most part and how people function here in the city, uh, yeah, you know, most people don't have regular simple W-2 income here. What could also make a deal non-QM, the buyer could actually fit into the QM category. The building might not. Do you want to jump into that now to the buildings? That's fine. Okay. So this is something I literally, every time that I do a buyer consultation, one of the, so one of the first things I ask them is where, where are you coming from? Because most people here are still relocating. Yeah. If they're coming from, you know, New York, New Jersey or out of the country, the, the rules are different and the process is different. Just the way that the realtors work, how we find property, the exclusivities and this, that's a little bit different. The contracts are different. The terms are different. So I go into that first. Sure. The second thing I do is I want to say, hey, tell me what you're looking for. And if they're looking for a condo, you know, single family home, not a big deal. But on the condo side, since some of the townhome communities, that that's where this QM, non-QM mm -hmm. is a big deal. Yeah. And so what I think a lot of people need to understand, and this is part of one of my first uh, consultations with them, is I explain to them, and sometimes I explain to them 10 times because it's a little bit different. Um, and I write them down and I have a worksheet that I give them. It's about what falls into the typical Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac stuff. Sure. So they're looking at the number of, owners to renters in a building. Yep. They're looking for what's called reserves mm -hmm. and they're looking for certain types of litigation. Correct. And so just to break out what what's reserves, because every time I have this conversation, what's a reserve, right? So the reserves is you have the budget for the building, they have the money they're getting from the uh, from the monthly uh, condo fees. Yep. Let's say it's $1,000 a month. Let's say there's 100 uh, units in the building, it's $100,000, so it's 1.2 million a year, right? Yep. They have 1.2 million a year. Let's say that they're able to keep you know, $130,000 in this, what I call the reserve bucket. Well, that's over 10%, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, but if they have 10% or more, typically that's more than enough. So yeah, you are correct there. Um, what we look for specifically when I see a, a balance sheet or, you know, a budget, the first thing I'm looking for is actually not the income. The first thing I'm looking for is their expenses. I want to make sure that they have at least 10% of the expenses in their budget. Because that's how you know for sure that you're good. So, for example, if the expenses were $800,000 and, you know, that's really all they spent, do they have $80,000 or more sitting in their reserves account? Why? I want to see that it comes back in also from the maintenance every month. So this, this poor guy, you know, he was, uh, his building was under, the building he was buying was under litigation. Um, this guy, I kid you not, I can't even exaggerate this. I remember this number specifically. He had been through 17 lenders got rejected by all 17, this guy's credit report was riddled with inquiries because he had been trying, he was under contract for 60 days before he came to me. And of, of course, because what happens is- So 17 lenders, how many realtors did he have? One. What the hell's going on? Why, why don't they? So, okay. I always say, if there's an 80% chance of getting the financing, let's move forward. Because, you know, I mean, even with the DU, not everyone's going to send all the financials to the underwriter. 
it's t- it's time consuming and it yeah. money, right? Of course. So a lot of a lot of lenders, until we're under contract and through the inspection period, they don't want to do. Of course. So you know this is this is why I had to learn so much about this and why I I do my own version of a financial review. And if I'm curious, I'm like, you know, I'm, is this eight or nine or ten or whatever it is? Then I get it from the lender. Because um, I hate having hang No, well, I will not I'll accept a contract if we haven't done our due diligence on the building. I, I preferably would not even ask them to submit an offer. Essentially what happened, and this was a great agent, by the way. She did her homework. I did my homework. So this is what happened. She was promised something by a lender. And this happens all the time. It was the buyer came from out of state with their own lender from back home. The guy was coming from New Jersey. He was coming from New Jersey. Oh, I got a guy. You know, he's closed everything for me. Well, you know. He's never done a deal in Miami. Never done a deal in Miami. I'm like, this guy. So long story short, this guy, he trusts his guy. He doesn't want to use anybody else. He comes down here. He goes under contracts. He puts his money in escrow. And um, yeah, man, three weeks in, rejected. Seller's like, if you don't close, I'm taking you to arbitration because I had six backup offers that were better than yours. So in real in reality, it should have been like, oh, we'll just go. I'll sell it to the to the next highest bidder, right? Um, but this guy was making a fit. Yeah, and so essentially, you know, this guy bounced from lender to lender to lender, got his credit run by everybody. Nobody could do this. And so he brought it to me and I said, well, what's the problem? Let me see the condo questionnaire. And I look at it and I'm like, okay, well, this is a this clearly we have to find a bank that will allow this. So the first thing I do, and this is why I love being a broker. Like a local bank? No, I just called and called and called. I pounded the phones with every lender that I know that I've used over the last seven years. Wow. And if that, and if those account executives didn't know, they would refer me to someone else who might. And eventually I ended up finding a lender. It wasn't the rate that the guy wanted. Back then it was a six and a half, which was insane for most people to even contemplate because rates were like in the threes, right? So the guy was getting this crazy high rate, which now is actually a decent rate. <laughs> and it's not the worst. Of the yeah, right. And so the dude's, you know, he's getting a six and a half. Um, and so anyways, we ended up close, closing the loan. I needed to get an extra extension, you know, to the contract. We made it happen, right? And so the, the thing about it is, number one, yes, the agent does need to do their due diligence. Two, of course, the loan officer for sure needs to do their due diligence. However, sometimes there's things that are outside of both of their control that you are not fully aware of either because the seller's agent may not have provided the intel or the association wasn't aware or they were and they wouldn't provide it either, which happened to be the case with this building. So what was the missing piece on this one? The missing piece was that there was a very serious litigation with over a hundred items structurally related on the punch list. The Surfside situation had just happened. No lender in the country wanted to touch anything with structural litigations. Now, that information had not been relayed to the seller's agent or the seller. Was it HOA against the developer? It was, yeah. Okay. yeah. And yes. nobody wanted to... HOA isn't a big lawsuit. Nobody wanted to say One anything. One thing, if someone's doing the HOA and the HOA can uh, do a release for that person, you know, even I've had some where there's a contractor suing the HOA, which means the homeowners cumulatively, mm-hmm. um, but they'll sign off that my client can sell or, or buy a unit. Yeah. And I think that's fair. Um, but yeah, th- things like that, where there's that much of a bunch list and that much of a problem, because are they going to have to do an assessment? Is the developer going to pay? The builder going to pay? The contractor, the sub, whoever it was that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things involved. In How long is it going to take? And, and they didn't have answers to any of that stuff. So thank God, you know, we found a lender eventually. It, it took me two days of making calls all day. 
to try to find somebody who would do it, but we got it done, right? So yeah, I mean, that those are just things that happen. This is the nature of our business. It's the nature of the city that we live in. You know, there's just crazy things here that we deal with that realtors and loan officers in other cities, they never even see. That's why it's important to be a really good problem solver and be creative. You know, I think yeah. that and then reputation. Have, having a lot of things in your quiver, yeah. Um, whether it's just contractors or this or that, but different people that you can call on. And, you know, with experience and positive um, experiences together with other people, you know, you really get that. Yeah. And that's that's definitely saved me many, many, many times where I can just pick up the phone and call someone and solve. Yeah. Love that. Back to our top three list. Yeah. Number one is do not buy a Lambo in Miami. That's all of you because I know that's what you think Miami's all about. Or a boat. Or a boat. Because boats and hoes and all that stuff. <laughs> hey, listen. It's Miami. Yeah, good one. I get, it really it's is. A it's a thing. So number three. Um, and two. Two was don't change your job or lose your job the day before closing. And if you do change your <laughs> job, it has to be the same job title, same money or more. Yeah. And you cannot go from a W-2 to a 1099, but you can go from a 1099 to a W-2. Correct. And... If you're going to go W-2 to sign, make sure you have a business that you've owned for more than two years. Yes, which is why everybody should open up an LLC. And just have it. Yeah, if you don't already have Correct. And then in three years, if you need it, you already have two years on it. There you go. Easy peasy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good one. So number three things not to do when you're buying a home. Don't get a divorce. Ooh. Yes. Oh, yes. Ooh. Oh, yes. Now, I'm not saying don't get divorced or don't get married, actually. So, so he, he, here's a couple of things. Well... It's true. So I've had this happen where someone gets a divorce. Yeah. In the middle of the sale in yeah. the house. But this goes for both. Okay. So I guess we're talking about buyers right now. So, so for the buyers, maybe don't get married yet. That's a tough one. I'm going to, I'm going to make some people really angry. Actually, I, I would, I would argue getting, against that getting, depending on the scenario because you were to do it on your own. If you can afford to do it on your own, great. If you need the spouse's income, you know, technically don't need to be married to buy it together. Right. Actually, and it would be better because if you weren't married, you could buy a primary. She could buy a primary. So this goes why I would say not to get married. Well, if if you're let me let me uh, if you're both gonna live separately, let me just put that in there for um, compliance reasons. Primary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before you move in together. Correct. You buy there a you primary, go. I buy a primary, and afterwards. We... As far as I'm concerned, I just know you both live separately in your own primary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the point is there's, there's benefits to that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, me, me being a, you know, I, I guess the sales side doesn't affect you. Yeah. But the big one for me is marriage isn't, so mar marriage on sales doesn't really matter, but divorce. Yeah. What a pain. Uh, something always comes up because one party wants one more than the other one. And this and this, it's almost better to just say, drag that thing out as long as you can. Divorce side, close your house. Wow. It's a lot easier for them to hold something. I mean, I guess if, if you're already in the middle of the divorce, you know, it's coming. Well, some people sell because they're going through a divorce. You're thinking about filing for a divorce and you're about to sell your house with your spouse. Wait. Oh, Paul, and I didn't know it. Wait. <laughs> because, and listen, this is the truth. So let's say one one party pays for the home. Maybe, maybe that individual puts all the down payment and pays all the monthly payments. Now, I believe what's fair is fair is a percentage of gain, 50-50. You both live in the house together. Both of you are responsible. I'm not trying to take one side or the other, whichever party it is. But but both parties just put the game. You lived in it together. You lived in it together. So I'm okay. I think that's fair. I think it's fair. I mean, yeah. people might not agree with me, but I think it's fair. Uh, I, at a minimum, at a minimum. 
You have kids, different conversation. We're not talking about that. Let's say that, that, that you're, you're selling a house with no children. You never had kids. You had, you had two dogs. Each of you picked one out. You take your dog, right? But I, I think that the equity gain should be split. But the point is, if that's the kind of conversation that you're having, you're thinking about selling your house, call us first and then wait. So I would wrap up number three. That's great. I didn't know that to that extent. Well, no, because look, and it's most people that are getting divorced are going to have attorneys. And attorneys, all they have in their eyes is flames and dollar signs. Yeah. Not all attorneys, but divorce attorneys are a little tough. And they're going after every penny they can. Mm -hmm. So let's say that somebody had a lot of other assets, right? Maybe both parties have, maybe one, whatever, however it is. You split that up how you want, but the, ha the house is usually the biggest purchase of someone's life. Usually, yes. not always. We have a lot of people down here coming out of different states, you know, Cali, D.C., New York, that have retirement accounts, funds and other things in the neighborhood businesses that are worth a heck of a lot more than the house. But for most people, for the average person in the United States, the home is the biggest, most expensive thing you're ever going to buy in your life. Yeah. Period. So there's ways to protect it. I, I have a, a couple of friends that are divorced attorneys, so they're always telling me that. Uh, but so, so, I, so what do you think our number three is for the well, do nots while you're buying a home? Well, actually, um, I thought about the third. Yeah. I just lost it. I had a great one. I had the same shit happen to me. Interrupt me and just send it. No, you're good. You're good. Um, okay, so what, getting into debt is where I started with that. Yes. One affects the DTI, which is your debt to income ratio. You want to tell us what that is? Is someone? Yeah, of course. So, um, debt to income ratio is is very important. It's basically the entire foundation of what you're approved for, right? And so essentially the way that we calculate that is we calculate your income first. Now there's metrics that go into that, right? It could be an average, et cetera, depending on how your pay structure is set up. We're going to calculate your income first. A lot of people think that their debt to income ratio is solely based off of their income. What they're not factoring in is their debt liabilities reporting on their credit report. Which is why if you buy the Lamborghini, the boat, it goes, that's why, right? So we've got our income, right? We have our minimum debts being reported on credit. So I don't care if it's a $10,000 loan or a $100,000 loan. If the payment's 250, I'm using 250. I don't care about the balance. Yeah, that's actually really, that's huge, right? So I don't care about the balance. I'm not looking at the balance. A lot of people, they they call me and they're like, oh, well, you know, I have this $80,000 student loan or I have a $200,000 student loan. And I'm like, it's okay, you know. As long as, the, yes. So I think people don't understand that. So it's based on your monthly income versus your monthly minimum debt. Correct. So what we'll do is, so let's say that you're making $10,000, right? You make 10,000 bucks a month. You have $2,000 worth of stuff, you know, credit cards, minimum payments, um, you know, auto loan and some student loans, right? Um, and so collectively that represents $2,000. We take the 10,000 that you make minus the 2,000 reporting on your credit report. Now I have $8,000 to work with. The max debt to income ratio is 50%. So I'm not using 50% of the 10,000. I'm now using 50% of the 8,000, right? So now you are qualified to purchase a home that represents the equivalent of a $4,000 a month payment. Now, where a lot of people get tricked up is that they don't realize that when they're buying a condo, there are incredibly high HOA dues in many buildings. That will also come off of the debt to income ratio because it's included in that total payment. Now, the cool part about the, the taxes, right? is that um, now in Florida, taxes get reassessed every November. And this is where a lot of people get tripped up. If you look at the taxes 
that we're using to qualify, I'm actually using the $5,000 to qualify him because it's a Fannie Mae Freddie Mac guideline. Right. So we say to qualify, you mean for, for the pre-qualification? Correct. It's a Fannie Mae guideline. Yeah. Pre-approvals, I only pre-approve someone based off of 2%, what it will be. I only pre-approve them. However, they are underwritten and closed based on what the taxes were or are at the present time. Purchase. Correct. Right. So that's the thing. So when I pre-approve somebody, it might end up being 1.6%, 1.7%, whatever the assessed value ends up sure. being, right? It could end up coming down. I always estimated at 2%. So whatever the purchase price is, right? I estimated at 2% and I always tell the buyer, look, if you go into the county records or if you get your loan estimate, when you get it from me, it's going to show the taxes are 500 bucks a month, right? However, they're going up to $1,200 a month. I want to prepare you for that. I'm pre-approving you based on that. And next year, they're going to go up to that most likely. It could be a little less, could be 1100, it could be, you know, a thousand. It depends on, of course, there's a tool within the Broward and Miami-Dade website where you can actually do a tax assessment estimate and you can check homestead or not homestead. A lot of people don't know that. I do that with everyone. Yeah, so I go into the county's website. Um, I do a tax estimator. Uh, I plug in the you know the the lot number and everything uh, that I found based off the previous tax rule, and then I always estimate what the taxes are going to be, and I always tell the client because I want to set a realistic expectation. What's going to happen throughout the process? And I only know this because I've done so many throughout the process, especially depending on the lender. They will most likely receive a payment shock letter. When they get that payment shock letter, because remember, the loan estimate's going out based off of the current taxes. Yeah, yeah. The new taxes are potentially going to go up depending on how long that seller owned the home, right? If they homestead. Yeah. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to go up. And so what happens is sometimes that difference is dramatic, like from 5000 to 19000 That's a huge difference. And so what's going to happen is they're going to get a letter. It's going to have a payment shock letter. I always prepare them for that because if you sell... Uh, purchase price and a monthly payment based off of what taxes used to be and you don't prepare them for what it could be, a lot of people can't afford it. I know. Well, and that's what I was talking about earlier, the cash sensitive. Correct. I mean, everything can become cash sensitive. Talking yeah. about, you know, going from $5,000 in taxes to $25,000 in taxes, that's $20,000 a year. Yeah. That's a lot of money. And so imagine this is also an investment property. So this is going to make their cash flow projections significantly different. And so that's basically how I would generally estimate it. But again, going back to our initial point, that will be put into your debt to income ratio as a part of your monthly payment on the pre-approval. Um, now, the importance of what I was mentioning earlier, where they're going to use last year's taxes to qualify you, when you go through the underwriting process, they're going to use last year's taxes to qualify you. So if, for instance, we use the 2% rule and you're at 49% DTI, that's perfect because when it goes through underwriting, you might be at 44. Oh, that one makes make sense. You know? So yeah, it, it just helps out. It helps the buyer. It sets them up with real expectations for, you know, what's to come. So yeah. for top three things not to do. We've been going on a rant. Buy a car, Lambo. Don't change jobs. If you do change jobs, uh, similar or same title. Occupation. Uh, same occupation, same industry, same, yeah. same industry. And... If you're W-2, stay W-2. Correct. Same or more money. Yeah. If you're 1099, you can go from 1099 to W-2 or 1099 to 1099, but all the other rules apply. Correct. What's number three? Number three. I put some thought into this one. Please. 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 Large deposits. Especially cash. Large cash deposits. <laughs> 
Here's the thing. I always tell people, if you're going to get a gift, get the gift at closing. Send it straight to escrow. And send it straight to the title company. Yeah. Yes. So my, my rule is always send it to the escrow agent. Yes. The closing agent. 100%. Actually, really straight to the closing agent. So a lot of times my company holds escrow. So I want to go into the closing company. I'm going to go a step further. Before, but And the reason why, I'll tell you why, is because at some point throughout this transaction, the bank's going to say, where are the funds? Oh, well, 40 to 50K of it's coming from a gift. Okay, well, where did that gift come from and when was it sent? Now, if it was not sent before, if it was sent before closing, now I have to get a copy of the donor's bank statements and not everybody wants to provide me with a copy of their bank statement. They're like, well, why, why the heck do I have to provide my bank statement? That's BS. I gave them a gift and I'm like, dude, it's anti-money laundering. You got a big gift. They got a big gift. They And the U.S. government needs to track where it is because it's over $10,000. You know, the, what I typically do is I'll say, hey, if you're getting a gift, that's great. Let's wait till the day of closing. Mom, whomever, she can send it directly to the title company. Now, I don't need a copy of her bank statement. All I need a copy of is the wire transaction summary. That's it. And, a give, and I'll write up a gift letter. I love it. That's good. Yeah. So if we were going to say them all three together really fast. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Thought three things not to do. Yeah. Buying a house with Nick and Drew. Don't buy the Lambo. Or boat. Don't buy the boat. Yeah. Basically, don't do anything purchases. Correct. Number two, keep your job. And so number three is no large deposits, please. And if you do get large deposits, I don't care if it's from your mother, father, uncle, sister, brother, whoever it's from, I need to source those deposits if they happen before closing, and preferably. Not cannot, cannot, cannot go into their personal bank account. It has to go straight to the closing agent. Preferably, yes. Because it just opens up a can of worms if it goes into the personal. Can of worms. Yes. And they have to source the money and track. And if your Uncle Vinny or your mom or someone does their taxes and they're all business yeah. owner and they have a lot of write-offs, it's not going to show that they have the income to give you the kind of gift to begin with and then you're causing other issues. Or it could have come from a large deposit that they don't want to source. Yeah. A lot of people don't want to show their bank statements. Cool. So, so that's our top three things not not to do. Not to do. Correct. Oh, I like that. That's why I said it. You're full of them. You're full of them. Uh, man, I'm a poet. Drew. Yes, sir. I got a good one for you. Ask me. Tell me about one of your biggest travel adventures. Ooh, okay. Biggest travel adventures. The first time I ever went out of the country, Medellin, Colombia. Oh, that's a great place to come out of the country for the first time. It was clear. How long ago was that? Uh, this was actually two and a half years ago. I remember when you went to Medellin. Yeah. That was your first time out of the country. It was my first time out of the country. But my first trip out of the country was Medellin, Colombia. Um, I had a fantastic time. It was actually super exciting for me um, because when I got there, I realized I'm from Virginia. I'm from the countryside. So he's from Southern Virginia. I'm from Northern Virginia. Yeah. I say D.C. One of, well, one of the things that I loved about Columbia when I went there was like these mountains everywhere because in Miami, it's so flat. Well, you know, when I grew up in Virginia, I used to ride and I still do. I ride motorcycles, although it's crazy dangerous here. Um, I haven't been on the bike in months because I had a scare. So, um, but yeah, man, I grew up riding motorcycles since I was very, very young. I grew up mountain bike. Okay. I, I did ride three wheelers when I was little. Those are more dangerous than four wheelers. Shattered this. No. The reason my, my elbow sticks in is because it was I had a helmet on. Okay. Not out there. And uh no, I had a really bad accident and I stood up and I go like this. This hand comes up. This one didn't. And I'm like, No. Yeah, no, not at all. I'm looking around. No. And I look at my little cousin Matthew and he's yelling something and I turn around and I look 
my left hand is over here on my side. Get out of here. And I look at him and I wiggle my fingers and I wave at him and he, and he lost it, starts losing his cookies. And I was like, oh, this is bad. Oh so, my God. Yeah. I got on bikes a few times after that. I have ridden motorcycles, but yeah. um, not, uh, not off-road anymore, only on the road. Okay. I'm like, I, I won't ride. Yeah. Miami is honestly really tough. The best time to ride here was during COVID because there was no, yeah. the, oh, was great, oh my God, it was amazing, bro. But yeah, I mean, so I rode through the mountains. Like that was my thing, bro, to get away. And uh, we were so dangerous, bro. We used to see how low we could get and we would wear the knee pucks to drag the knees just up and down the mountain roads, twisty turnies. And when I went to Medellin, I was like, bro, these mountains are so beautiful. And on top of it, not only does it have the beauty of the mountains, but then it has the same tropical vibe. Yeah, I guess my first international trip as an adult was Brazil, like on my own. Okay. That's great. I fell in love with the girl. I, you know, I grew up in DC. Two days after high school, I moved from Fairfax to uh, Captiva Island, which is on the west coast of Florida. Yeah. Loved it there. That was like my paradise. We always had a place on Santa, my family did. So I grew up spending summers actually between there and Ohio, of all places, because my parents were. Oh, well. Okay. Yeah. I, I say Columbus, but my dad's from a small town called Dublin. My mom's from Powell. Uh, basically, some of the best corn in the entire country comes out of there. And so I meet this girl in uh, my like, third or fourth week living on Captiva. I was working as a cook. I was a, I was a chef before I got into real estate. That's a health issue story we'll tell another time. Okay. Good story though. And see this girl walk in the kitchen and I got this guy named St. Paul that's training. I'm like, St. Paul, I'm going to marry that woman. And he's like, no, you're not. I'm like, no, I, I'm going to marry. He's like, you're not. He's like, get back to I said, St. Paul, introduce me. I'm going to marry because she's smiling and waving at him. Anyway, long story short, I moved to Brazil. So I turned, I think I turned like 19 on Captiva. I turned 20 in Brazil, 21 in Miami. Wow. But Brazil was amazing. I lived in a place called Curitiba, which is a huge metropolitan city all the way in the south. It's amazing. So you said you thought, you thought you thought about moving to Colombia. Yeah. And I have a couple of friends of mine that are realtors that have asked to succeeded. And her and Olga's been traveling for over a year and a half. And she inspired me. Now, I, I wish I had spoken to her a year and a half ago when she had the idea. But um, she's been living in places like Costa Rica and Mexico, right on the beach, beautiful places. You know, the, the interesting thing about this is if you already have a client base, as a realtor, as a mortgage broker, you know, I guess as a, as a lender, you work with a lot of realtors. Of course. So as long as you keep up with us, you do nice content, dude, you could be living in like a uh, a tree house somewhere, yeah. sitting in your, you know, whatever, sitting in your hot tub or sitting on a balcony, or I'd be sitting in a hammock doing my content. Yeah. Hanging out and you get birds and carrots and monkeys in the background. That would be the wildest. That would be amazing. So as long as you continue to stay relevant yes, in our face, and then you reach out, personal messages, private videos, I'd want to send you all my deals just because I want more videos of you and out with parrots on beach with dolphins and sharks and monkeys. Seriously, I would send you business all day long. So the, the point I'm getting at is I thought about it too. I thought about moving. Uh, not moving, just traveling. But the situation that I was in, I, I went to Dubai for 15 days last year, and my second day there, there was a problem with the team. I was like, ah, one of them wasn't quite catastrophic, but it was pretty close. Um, so, you know, I, I learned really quickly that, okay, I shouldn't just drop up and leave. Yeah. But, but if I was there working and I, I was working in Dubai, speaking at conference, you know, I do, I do a lot of it. How was that time change? Was that easy to maneuver? No, it was rough. Cause I'm over there, you know, doing. Oh, cause you were, yeah, you were speaking and at the event world. So oh, wow. at midnight or one o'clock there, I start engaging here. So I was up till three, four o'clock in the morning on the average and then getting up at seven, eight o'clock. That's rough, dude. I couldn't do that. I did it for 15. 
But the point I'm getting at is, yeah, I thought about it. How long did that take to recover from? About a month. Oh, my God. I was, I was dragging. I was dragging for but Yeah, I thought about doing Okay. Um, uh, yeah, man. I don't know. It's still, it's, it's still, uh, well, right now, you know, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see if we can make it happen. My girlfriend won't let me go there alone. <laughs> so uh, I think so she's gonna... won't let us go anywhere. <laughs> beautiful. Especially South America. Or... Yeah. Especially if they're from South America. Yeah, I know. Yeah. No, they already know the vibes. But um, I've had lots of girls. I had conferences in Brazil that I was going to go to. And they asked me Portuguese. And you know how passionate I am about Brazil yeah. and about the people, culture, the food. Yeah, man. I'm in. I'd love to have little, I'd love to have little Portuguese speaking babies. I've, I've had this dream to one day hear, papai, papai. So, so that's how they say dad. It's like daddy. Bye, bye is dad. And papai is how a lot of the kids say daddy. And I just love the accent. And if I, you know, if God brings the right woman into my life and she happens to be Brazilian, I'd be so happy. That's awesome. I love the accent. And then raising a little kid with the Brazilian accent and I get to hear words like that. It just, I mean, you see how I'm smiling about it. Dude, so you already have your answer, bro. You I shouldn't be settling for anything else unless it's a Brazilian woman then. Well, <laughs> it doesn't have to be a Brazilian woman, but every girl I've ever dated since then won't let me go down to Brazil. <laughs> so I go, I Maybe it's because your future wife is there. That's why they don't want you. It's inter- It's Yeah, well- that's a. Your future wife's down there, maybe. That's why they don't want you to go. I know. They've got those like tingly, you know, woman senses. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the experiences, man. Just different experiences, different places, just different cultures, different ideals. Um, and getting the exposure to that, I think, is critical. And I wish that I had done a little bit more of that as a, you know, in my younger years because. You know, I, I know one of your questions is like, what were you like as a child, right? And I could go on for a long time about that. But, you know, one of the main things was I didn't think that there was anything else outside of my small reality. Really? And my, because I had never been exposed to it. Yeah. And my small reality was a f- small country farm town where most of the people that I interacted with on a daily basis were very racist. And sure. I, I yeah, I know. You know, and so, yeah, it wasn't. That's- yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't fun. Um, and so I, you know, I didn't like growing up there. I didn't, but I didn't know anything else. And it was interesting because I goofed off a lot in school and I screwed around and I just wasn't paying attention. I had really had no goals or aspirations until I went and visited New York city. And that was my first exposure outside. That was actually when I was in college. No, I'm sorry. The first time I went there, Shenandoah University. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so you really didn't get out. I never left. No way. See, so yeah, I, I left at 18. I went to college in my... Mm. Um, that would have probably been dangerous for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was okay. I was okay my first two years at Johnson & Wales. Mm. Transferred and I went to FIU. I met a lot more people. And, uh, look, it's... I I think your 20s is the time to do some dumb things. Well, really, as a teenager, right? For, for different reasons. But, you know... Learn when you are as a teenager, experiment, do dumb things, push yourself in your 20s. Your 30s is when I think you really start to settle down, or at least you should, if not settle down in your 20s. And I think your 40s is when like life really begins at a different mm. I like, like, that's kind of how I feel. Yeah. Okay. But um, back to what you were saying about how, how you were as a kid. So when I was a kid, uh, until I was, I don't know, a teenager, my dad was a colonel in the Army. So my dad was in the Army mm. for 24 years. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so he ran the tight ship. Oh, yeah. He always ran the tight ship, but in a good way. He super loving. Like, my parents had just celebrated, I think, their 53rd wedding anyway. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we always had a huge family, and I, uh, I always thought I had like 50 uncles because I had Uncle Sheik, Uncle Gumby, Uncle Doc, Uncle Recap, Uncle This, Uncle That. My dad's buddy, Symbia. Wow. I'm like, yeah, my dad was a commanding officer in Coochie. Fifty-four years ago now, something like that, is when they all got to Kuchi. Um, so they were there for like the Battle of the Tet. It's a pretty tough stuff. Wow, you know these 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 men were in a lot of the situations that the movies are made out of. Specifically, mm-hmm. um, you know, three quarter cal. Actually, I have it right here, three quarter cavalry. So I got this tattoo here for my father. I always wanted to get one to kind of inspire me to be such an amazing leader. It just serve others at a really high level. And just because I, I love him so much, mm. really near and dear my heart. And this one over here is a mermaid from my mom. Got it, got a little, oh, that's awesome. And a comp chill up to her ear because she's my cool the dancing mermaid. But the point is three quarter cavalry. We have this thing we call the cavalry, cavalry family. Um, and so when I was a kid, I knew all about Asia and different places because my dad was always there. Wow. He'd bring us home these cookbooks that I still have. And that's what they gave the military. And it'd be a photo book from Korea. You see these crazy photos, and it was an English word to say, you know, bagogi, chakche, yakimandu, you know, whatever it is, you know, gabe, all, all the different dishes. Yeah. I really love dot gooey. Anyway, so it shows you that, and then it has all the Korean, and then it shows you photos and agreement. So I remember things like that. And there's a story that I've told in one of my videos where my dad was in Japan for a while, doing some research for, for one of the one of the projects he was working on for the Department of the Army, I believe, Department of the Army at that point. And he brought my sister and I home. He's like, wind socks from some big cultural celebration in Japan. Yeah. And it was really neat. So I, I knew a lot about that. And then we ate a lot of, uh, you know, Thai food when I was a kid, Japanese food, Dang. a lot, lot of Vietnamese and Laotian food. I grew up in the D.C. area, so you have a big, big yeah, environment. Yeah, that's true. We have entire neighborhoods that are Vietnamese, entire neighborhoods that are Thai. Um, so I, I grew up with that. And then I grew up eating a lot of C- Cajun food and a lot of what I call like the Maryland, D.C. seafood scene. <laughs> I know. Oh, best. I know. Uh, Chesapeake, sitting on the Chesapeake Bay and fresh chucked oysters. With some Old Bay? Yeah, Old Bay's great. I love the Old Bay. A little bit of hot sauce. Yeah. But anyway, so I, I had this culture spirits when I was a kid. But the unique part about it is I shared temporarily, I shared your experience on a pretty regular basis. And in my summers, we'd go to Ohio, out to the sticks. Mm. And... I had friends that were from all over the world. I had uh, one of my best friends when I was a kid. I had a German friend, my one really little, my friend John John was, I, I called him John John. I couldn't pronounce his name and he called me John John. I said, um, he was from Korea. And then I had a really good friend from Ghana. I had friends from Ethiopia in school. Um, I actually, they taught me a little bit of a BBO. A BBO is the language that they speak in Ghana. So I knew, and this is, <laughs> I'm gonna see if I can remember it. I think it was, a body a antenna bbo diploma i know i just totally butchered that <laughs> but it says hi i speak a bbo buy me something pretty i was like 10 and i thought it'd be fun. wow anyway so I, I i grew up with this really big cultural melting pot in in the washington dc yeah so i grew up in a really military neighborhood so the point is i had the very country version the somewhat sheltered version of that where people are uh just much simpler life and mm-hmm. the exposure you have to things is in books and on television, maybe the radio. And, uh, yeah. And then I would go back to DC. So uh, on that note, one of the things that I love about Miami that kept me here, 
Um, I always tell people if they ask me, I say, well, it's the warm water because I can paddleboard all year round. There, there's not a day that goes by throughout the year, any time that I've lived here over my many that I couldn't go jump in the ocean. Will I be a little chilly sometimes? Yeah, sure. Maybe it's maybe it's 68 low, but that's pretty damn warm for the rest of yeah. the country. Right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Virginia, Virginia, you couldn't jump in it. No. Has there's no way. And it's still cold. Uh, the point I was getting at is, I think one of the things that I love, I always say the warm water, mm-hmm. the weather, the people, the culture, the food. Um, but it's because it's a cultural melting pot. It is. It really is. A lot of our melting pot is around Central and South America. Well, we have a lot of Canadians here. We have a lot of people from different parts of Europe. We have a lot of yeah. Israelis here. A lot of Russians. A lot of French, a lot of Russians. And there's all those different countries from over there too, uh, from, from Eastern Europe now. Um, and it's a me, you know, and... We can walk downstairs right now and go to one of the restaurants or bars in the neighborhood or just take a walk. And we're going to run into probably, out of 20 people, at least 10 different cultures. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and there's that. so much variety. That's what I love too. Not just in the people, but in the things to do. Exactly. The types of properties. I mean, the amount of diversity here. Oh, yeah. We have waterfront homes. We have cottages. You have penthouses. You have rooftop terraces. You have this. You have lost like we're in right now. Uh, you have city living, you have rural living. Yeah. There's actually farms. I've sold 40 acre yeah. farms. I've sold eight acre farms. I've sold estates. You have estates on the water, estates in the suburbs, and then you have estates in the sticks. I mean, the sticks is 30, 40 minutes away from here. It's not yeah. Far. It's not, not far. Um, the amount of diversity and the richness we have here is just it's unreal. There's so much opportunity. Yeah. And I think that's what I love. You know, I was actually, uh, I, I had been going through like a, a low moment probably about five years ago and uh, a financial low moment. And I was like, man, I really need, my business was on the fritz and a lot of things were going wrong. And I was like, I think I'm going to go home. And so I went home to Virginia and I was like, I can't last another, I, I think I ended up being there for like a month. And I was like, I got to go back to Miami. I have That's to go. Dark place to leave. Because, you know, the thing is, the thing is, there, there's two things. Um, you know, my parents told me once, they were like, oh, you know, you're making a killing. You do so well for yourself. You should just move back to Virginia and save so much money. And there's one way to think about it. But I said, mom and dad, you know, I respect that for sure. I'm, I'll never do that. And I said, because I could for sure save money, but my opportunity to make more would be so diminished. Yeah. And, and what I like about Miami, and this, this is an interesting thing too that I learned quite a few years ago now. Yeah. Starting a new business. It's just a lot of money here. Between billions and billions of dollars a year, we have in tourism in every single small market. Yeah. It, the amount of money that just gets moved around in real estate. And you have trillions of dollars of real estate done. I mean, every neighborhood is worth billions, right? I mean, at least hundreds of millions, even in a small time neighborhood. I know. It is. So the, the point I was getting at is that the level of income that you can achieve here in a short period of time, even being in certain industries, yeah, right? Or as an entrepreneur, I don't know anywhere else that you can make the same money that quickly and that easily. I agree. Because if you go like like the places that you and I grew up, relationships are a big part of it. Huge. And some people are loyal to their relationships for decades. Here we get calls over the phone and next thing you know, we're, we're, we're working with somebody. Yeah. You get a lot of referrals too, but I mean, you know, look, relationship goes a long way. And 85% of my business is referral driven, but I also choose to do it. There's been other times where a lot of my uh, business came off uh, an online real estate port. Mm. And a lot. You know, and and I might close, I don't know, you know, the the, the equivalent of fifty to one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand GCI off of that. Now, sometimes it wasn't always mine; it was with the, it was with the company. So I had people that sure too. 
But but imagine you can be someone who doesn't know anybody, get a license, you move to a new city, you partner up with a mentor, a team. I always say get on a team if you're gonna. I always yeah, I tell people that as well. So you have an expert negotiator who understands the local market and understands how to navigate that part of the industry in that specific neighborhood. So you get on a team and then you go to one of your favorite portals or a newspaper or you start a podcast, become the Edgewater realtor, whatever it is. They're very geocentric, right? Or you just spend money on a zip code. You can very easily make one hundred fifty dollars to $250,000 a year, if not for sure, just off of that alone. I agree. Other people have to go to school for years, years. and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Well, I, I tell people that all the time. There's so much opportunity. And if you're willing to work hard and you're willing to seek out the right knowledge. It's not all motorcycles, hot rods, and beach time. No, it's not. I don't think it is. And, you know, when I first moved here, I mean, I was going to the beach all the time, hanging out with people at the club five, four nights a week. Oh, my, oh my God. It was endless. Sometimes two or three in one night. It was back to, oh, yeah, we'd go from one <laughs> to the other to the next one. The sun's out. Got to go to work, right? And so, yeah, life was crazy when I first moved here and I was not focused whatsoever. And so, you know, really what changed for me when I really got serious was I went through a substantial loss going back to that financial situation and I was going to file bankruptcy. I went home. I was in a lot of debt. I lost a a major endeavor. Um, And so I hated being there so much. During the time that I was back, I ended up going to Maryland I got a job at the same mortgage company that, you know, I was out here in Miami previously. Um, and so, dude, I started busting my ass and I worked day and night, day and night for six months straight. Actually, I think it was, it ended up being eight months, paid off all the debt. I was in, in over a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt, paid off all the debt and came back here during that time period. I made two friends in the entire city. I was in Baltimore at the time. Well, Glen Burnie, but that, that's where I bought my hot rod in Glen Burnie. Yeah. Dude. The, that hot rod's about the only thing in that in that town. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's right outside of Paul. But um, yeah, man. So you know, it was my desire to get back here. I wanted to be back here. I wanted the opportunity. I wanted the culture. And that's the thing is, when you become so passionate about a place or a person or an endeavor or or something, you'll do whatever it takes to get it right. And you'll do whatever it takes to keep it because getting it's one thing, keeping it's another. You have to stay consistent. And I love Miami, bro. I love Miami for the opportunities. I love Miami for the people. Now, it's very interesting to say that now because I used to say I hated Miami people because I used to always get burned, right? When I first moved here, it was like burn, backstab, lies. I think we got to be specific on this because I I don't want to offend the local. Yeah. Well, I don't have that problem anymore. (laughs) I still have a problem with people sometimes, but it's not about about where they're from. It's not about locals. It's... And this, this is, this is, this is kind of the true part. So we can talk about this too. Yeah. Man, Miami's a hard place. It, it's an easy place if you know a lot of people, but let me tell you, a lot of people here are not your friends. I would agree with that statement entirely. At all. They're, they're fair, they're fair weather friends on the weekend that you're renting a boat. Mm. That'll take 20 people. Everybody's your best friend. They'll tell you that they'll take photos of you. They'll post photos of them with you on the boat that you paid for, but they're not chipping in. Mm. They're not paying for gas. So some people will chip in a hundred bucks, boat for the weekend costs a lot more than that. The point I'm getting at is I learned that the hard way. I did too. I had an entourage. Mm. Yeah. You know, and people would call me as their plug. I knew a lot of people. Um, 
I was never like a club promoter, but I knew owners of the clubs. I knew the DJs. I could walk. I could walk around in the front door. We we would go to some of the biggest clubs in town on a Saturday night. There's a headliner, and the opener was a really good friend of mine, and the security guards all knew who I was. So people would just pull up and go, "Hey, I'm you know." And there's a line. There's 200, 300 people sometimes to get on these clubs, and I could walk in and just say, "Hey, Fernando, what's up?" And everybody gets put, you know, big Fernando, big guy. He just pushes everyone out of the way. He's like, "How many people?" I'm like, "Oh, there's." 16 of us come on in and that wow now my my rule was if if one of my guys lets you in the club gotta give him a tip yeah at least the guys you know that the guy the guys have to tip the doorman yeah they have to and sometimes i would collect in advance and i'd be like hey there's 16 of us i got you know 10 girls six guys here's 300 bucks here's 600 bucks whatever it was. yeah because you know that that he's taking us friday and they have a table for me in the dj booth a lot of times they had a free bottle or two and then we just tip on the bobs well you get pretty popular pretty quick. Yeah. The people in the club see it. And, and I wasn't spending a lot of money. We, there was a lot of money going around because I was the plug. Um, and, and then people would give me stuff. I was always really friendly. I was really talkative. I was always very helpful. It's not a problem. They'd call me. Well, what happened is people would call me for a good time and call me to solve problems. Mm-hmm. And I tell you how I knew I didn't have very many friends. I got sick. Yeah, 17 years ago. That's how I got into real estate. December 18th. I think it was December 18, 2005 was my first night in the hospital. Wow. And I'm pretty sure that was the year that I lied to my parents, told them that I was working a double for Christmas. I was in a lot of pain. I was in and out of the hospital. I had a lot of GI issues, like gastrointestinal. Uh, I was having spasms from my esophagus down. Uh, I call it my allergies. And basically everything made me sick from dander, from dust. I mean, I probably would have had anaphylaxis just being here. Mm. Just getting in the elevator, the carpet in the hallway, anything could have set me off. And there was no rhyme or reason, and there was no uh, medical diagnosis that made any sense. There was one point where they, one of the doctors said, oh, you, you have some rare kind of intestinal cancer. I didn't. They were just throwing medical diagnoses at me. Really scary time in my life. The point I'm getting at is friendships. I learned very quickly that I had a handful of Maybe not even. And the hardest part is I was pushing everybody away. I didn't have words to describe what I was going through. There was no words. There was, there was no diagnosis. Mm. So I couldn't say what was happening. My, my guy called my brother, Kevin, God rest his soul. Um, Kevin had heart issues since he was a baby. He wasn't supposed to make it. He wasn't supposed to make it to a month, to six months, to a year, to five, to 10 years old, to 20, to 21, to 25. He wasn't supposed to get married. wasn't supposed to have a baby. And he reminded me of, he told us that when we met him. I met him at FIU. It's 21. Anyway, 22, whatever. I met him there. Kevin knew that there was something really crazy going on with me. He knew. He, and he, because he had been dealing with health issues since he was a baby. So it was very common for him. You know, we had a lot of emergency phone calls from Kevin's family, girlfriend, and, and now wife over the years, where Kevin was in the hospital. We didn't know if he was going to make it. So the point is, Kevin, my brother, we, went through shit together and adventures and horror stories and everything in the middle. He was one of my friends, my brother, Giovanni. Giovanni taught me something. And Kevin, one day, sitting around talking, tells us, brothers, I got to tell you something. Like God just spoke through. He goes, God gives his toughest battles to his strongest warrior. And then he repeats, he goes, God gives his toughest battles to his strongest warriors. Three grown men, we all, the point I'm getting at is friendships. I had them, and then my, my buddy Eric knew that something was going on. 
Um, but all of us had had huge trials and tribulations in our life. A lot of it health related. Mm. And I think that was it. Didn't no didn't have words to explain to my parents, my coworkers. I ended up taking, I think I took a semester off school. I, I left a semester in the middle, uh, tried to get healthy. But the point I'm getting at is that this whole story about friendship, the health stuff became the biggest blessing of my life. It literally became the biggest blessing of my life. And I can sit with a smile on my face today um, to make a short version of this. The struggles taught me so much. It taught me how to enjoy as much as you can in life. And one of the biggest lessons I learned from that struggle that I call, like I said, my biggest blessing now, a defining moment, is that there's always going to be ups and downs. Mm. There's going to be things that hurt us and make us feel good. Do the things that feel good as much as you can. The things that feel great, do them in moderation. <laughs> the things that hurt you, you don't have to do them. Yeah. Whether it's habits, whether it's relationships, whether it's people, whether it's food, whether it's exercise, especially on the food and the relationship part. I don't believe in taking a pill so I can have milk. I can still have anaphylaxis. That lactate stuff doesn't work for me. My allergy sensitivity for my body is way beyond lactate. Um, but it's something to think about. And so the point is, is the toughest thing in my life, I found my biggest blessing. And I learned a lot about relationships. I learned that I didn't really have 150 friends on a Friday night. I learned that I had three. Mm. Three people. When I was sick on the floor in the bathroom and scared and thought I was going to die and violently yelled, three people I could call. It was three. Two of them would come running. The third one would too, but he had kids at a certain point that he'd have to ask his wife's permission. He'd be there 30 minutes later. On the days that I was scared and had to go to the hospital, I had three people that I could count on. Three. Now, I could have gone home. I should have. Uh, didn't want to have my parents go through it with me. It was actually really hard. I, sometimes I wish that I had gone home because my parents, not until years later, really understood, I think, the gravity of what was happening. And until they saw me get very ill with them at restaurants, nobody in my family really understood it. Mm. Yeah, that's where I learned a lot about my friends. I, I learned that on my deepest, darkest days... And, and you can use this as an analogy, right? The deepest, darkest days, that is that you're violently ill, laying on a floor in a bathroom. Um, I had a, quite a few days and nights that I'd be so sick that I didn't know if I could make it out of bed. I was in so much pain, spasming, and violently ill, projectile vomiting, projectile everything, sometimes, very unfortunate, um, that I was afraid to wake up in bed because I could wake up vomiting across the room. Mm. It, it happened. Um, so I would gather some water, some papaya, whatever I killed on my, my bag of pills from the doctors that actually made me sicker, found that out later. And I would go into the bathroom. I mean, so much can I'd almost crawl there some nights. And I, there's quite a few nights that I had a bucket by the crawl into the bathroom and I would lay on the tile floor cause it was cool. I would go into cold sweats when I'm violently ill, when you're vomiting a lot, your body starts to react. Your body goes into shock. I had a lot of nights in shock the whole night. And I would take my big beach towel and I'd lay on that and I'd use one as a pillow, one as a blanket. Wow. I spent a lot of nights like that. So the point I was getting at is I had three people that I could count on. And I was even scared to call them. I, was, I wasn't so scared to call Kevin because by this point, I'd gone and visited Kevin in the emergency room quite a few times. I'd gotten those phone calls from his sister, from his parents, from his girlfriend, and, and not wife. Um, but yeah, you know, you, you, you learn a lot about friendship when you're dealing with something very scary. I agree. So that's my defining moment. And... Uh, one of the toughest things that I ever dealt with, but really became my biggest blessing. And just one more little thing to add, the blessings because my level of understanding for people, my level of compassion for empathy, my understanding of friendship, brotherhood, 
uh, and just the level of love and passion that I have for life and for everything that makes me feel good and makes me feel great and the appreciation that I have for the battles and the struggles and things that make me feel bad. Mm. That's what I got out of this. It's huge. Yeah. And a few relationships where later on I was able to help other people and save their lives. I was able to save people that were suicidal, that were depressed through taking all the ordeal that I learned through my struggles and learning from a Chinese healer and my doctors and my friends that were close enough with me. I've been able to help other people. So that that's kind of my defining moment in my term blessing. Wow. Do you have a turning point in your life or a stress? Yes, I do. Because I, I can see it in your eyes. Yeah, man. And, and um, if you're well, if you're open to share. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I have a couple. I have a couple for sure. I think there's always like the one that as an adult or, or as a child that shaped into somebody different where you just got chewed up and spit out and you had days that you didn't know how you were going to get to the next day. Do you have any days like that? There's two main incidents um, that were defining moments. And, you know, one of them happened more recently. That was a, a relationship, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the guy might know which one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it was a devastating, you know, exit to a very yeah. tragic um and traumatic, you know, situation that I had put myself into. And I'm still very much, you know, in the process of healing, right? Not necessarily from that, but from everything that that uncovered about myself. That's huge. And so through your struggles, you start to really peel back the layers of onion. Correct. So what I realized was she was a trigger to some of the deepest, darkest, wounds from my childhood that I had never wow. healed from. That's and she was a direct reflection of all of those things and the culmination of them together. And through that process of going through it, it was one of the most heartbreaking experiences I've ever been through. It was tragic. It was traumatic. The police were involved. Scary. It was scary. Oh, we, we thought everything was perfect. And the next thing you know, we're all scared for you. And so, yeah, I know it was, it was crazy. And and I think, you know, the defining moment for me was in the process of healing and in the process of going through therapy and the process of going through these retreats that I've been going on for, yeah. for months now. Um, I, you know, really what I uncovered was I feel like every single situation we either put ourselves in, right, or we allow. And there's a lot of things that we allow because they were things that happened to us as children or growing up or throughout our life. And we continue to allow them because it's a comfort zone that we may subconsciously be not aware of. And so really good. one of the things that I had to uncover through this process was how to set boundaries, yeah. how to realize, you know, what I deserve and what I don't. But first I had to believe that I deserved it or believe that I didn't, which means that I had to break subconscious things that I wasn't even aware of that had been ingrained in me from such a young age because of either incidents that happened to me or things that had been told to me that I believed about myself. And so going to boundaries, boundaries are so critical. I didn't have them in my last relationship. I wasn't in my masculine frame. I got walked all over and walked on and things happened to me that I allowed to happen to me because I didn't either say no or walk away, right? What you're saying is so important. So when you say you allowed it to happen to you, I think a lot of people, and I'm so happy to hear you using those kind of words, right? Words are so important. Mm. And that that's something else that I learned through my struggles as well, is that the words matter. And uh, not to interrupt you, but 
that that mindset is, I think, crucial to getting through any struggle. Yeah. But to hear you, it makes me proud to hear you say that because it shows that you're such a bigger man now to be able to take such an ordeal. As I remember, I, w- I was around for that. Yeah, man. And that was some serious stuff. And a lot of people would have completely lost it. Like, just crumbled under it and never recovered. And the fact that you're able to recognize and dissect this at points and pull these pieces out and go, I let this happen. Now look, boundaries are something that, that are also able to be broken. And, and when, when there's love involved, we let a lot of things happen. And you always want to see the best. And we put the love blinders on. I get of course. So the kind of women that we like. It's, it's easy to put the blinders on because she's so amazing. I know that. Things feel so good. But uh, that's so important. Yeah, man. Is to be able to use those words and to put it put the situation into a place that it empowers you. Yeah. Right? So no matter how bad it was, it's taking those moments of learning. Mm-hmm. Exactly. God does give us struggles. Yeah. And there's a lot of different ways that you can go. Like you walk down a hole with all these different doors. I sometimes wonder if I choose the door that God wanted me to. But then also, I also believe that God doesn't necessarily care which door I go in, that all the doors have a lesson there. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I say this a lot where I'll say that it's, it's not the prize at the end of the journey. It's the journey itself that really matters. Absolutely. I think that's the part that you really have to enjoy. And I think that that's where we grow the most. If all you do is focus on getting to that prize, getting to that final stage, you missed all the beautiful and wonderful things along the way. The love of your life could have come there. You could have gone to another country. You could have learned so much. You might have given up time with somebody. You could have given up time with someone that, or someone that you did. And it's finite, and we don't know when it ends. Mm-hmm. And so I think that 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 mentality is so important and just growing no matter how traumatic how stressful how many times you just wanted to bang your head against the wall or get on a plane to leave getting through those moments what make us stronger and what make us great humans great men yeah. great leaders. well dude it's been uh it's been a pleasure having you man i think if i talk it about it I think we could literally talk for like two more hours. I feel like it's time for a snack and a cold beverage. I agree, man. So, um, yeah, bro, I appreciate you coming on. Um, Absolutely. I'm excited to release this to people. I think a lot of people can find some nuggets in this. I feel like probably 20 nuggets? Yeah. Or more? There's a decent amount of nuggets in this. (laughs) But, yeah, man, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell people where they could find you? Yes. Hey, everybody. Uh, (laughs) You can find me everywhere. Nick Tiger Quay. That's it. So you look at Nick Tiger Quake, Rauer, anywhere online, on Google, on Instagram. I'm mostly on Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. Realtors, I will not add you on LinkedIn, but that's for another story. <laughs> Everybody else can add me on LinkedIn. If you want to <laughs> see my day-to-day content and crazy things that we do living in Miami, if you want to hear about transactions, you want to hear more tips and tricks from people like Drew and I, Instagram's a great place on yeah, Facebook. I agree. Awesome, bro. Well, thanks, thanks, man. Where can we find you? Drew's the move on Instagram. Um, you can find this podcast at www.plantedmoves.com. I love it. You can also find it on YouTube at Planted Moves, Instagram at Planted Moves. And um, yeah, this is what we're working with, man. Love it. I'm excited. Pleasure, brother. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Bye, everybody. Thanks for watching.